Hello and welcome to the latest episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update podcasts. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the disputes team in London. And I'm joined today by Alex Audi, who's a partner heading up our insurance and professional risk team and our ADR practice, and he's also an accredited mediator. Hello, everyone. And also by Martin Heavey, who's a senior associate in our disputes team. Hello. So in this edition, I'm going to look at some recent developments relating to enforcement of judgments, litigation funding and class actions. Then Alex will discuss an important Court of Appeal decision on ADR that came out in late November. And Martin will finish off with a couple of interesting recent decisions on exclusion clauses and the Unfair Contract Terms Act. So to kick off with enforcement, the government announced late last year that the UK would join the 2019 Hague Judgments Convention. And I'm pleased to say it has already signed the convention, which it did on the 12th of January. Now, that's very good news for the enforcement of English judgments, particularly as the convention is already in force for the EU, as well as Ukraine and later this year also Uruguay. So once the convention is in force for the UK, most English judgments will be readily enforceable between the UK and the EU, similar to the position before Brexit though I should say not identical, as the convention is a bit narrower than the EU regime, but still very good news. The UK still needs to ratify the convention, which I expect will happen quite quickly, as I understand the government's working to put in place the relevant implementing legislation, and there does seem to be political will to move quickly on this. Once ratified, it will come into force for the UK 12 months later, so probably sometime in 2025, hopefully early in 2025, and it will then apply where the proceedings leading to a judgment are commenced after the entry into force date. So it's not enough that judgment is given after that date. The proceedings have to have been commenced after the entry into force date. So obviously that means it will be a while before Hague 2019 has practical impact for English judgments, but the UK's signature is certainly a very positive step. Next, an update on litigation funding. So I've spoken in previous episodes about the Supreme Court's decision in Packer last July, which held that agreements where the funder is paid a share of damages are damages-based agreements, or DBAs, and therefore have to comply with the restrictive regulatory regime that applies to DBAs in, in order to be enforceable. Now, the Justice Minister has recently indicated that he intends to reverse the effect of Packer, seemingly not just limited to opt-out competition claims where legislation has already been proposed to reverse the current ban on funder DBA. So we'll have to wait to hear more about those plans. But in the meantime, a key question remains how funders can avoid their agreements being DBAs. And in a number of recent cases, the Competition Appeal Tribunal has held that agreements where the funder was to be paid a multiple of the funding provided rather than a share of damages were not DBAs, even though the funder's fee was capped by reference to the proceeds recovered uh, or or a subset of of those proceeds. Now, the CAT has found that the defining question for a DBA is whether in substance the amount of the proceeds determines the size of the funder's fee rather than merely being a factor that might affect it, such as a cap. But the CAT's decision does leave open the possibility that a cap set at a percentage of proceeds might in some cases mean an agreement to the DBA, depending, it seems, on the purpose of the cap. And I should say these decisions are going to appeal, so there's still scope for uncertainty on what precisely uh, will mean a funding agreement is a DBA. 
And finally, from me, I want to mention the Court of Appeals decision in Commission Recovery and Marks and Clark on CPR 19.8 representative actions. Now, we've spoken about the High Court's decision in that case in previous episodes. That's the case that seemed to adopt a very liberal approach to the same interest requirement for bringing a representative action because the court allowed the claim to proceed despite recognising that some elements might depend on class members' individual circumstances and require information from them, which it's generally accepted is not possible under CPR 19.8. But it's now clear that the parties in that case accept that the CPR 19.8 procedure itself can only be used to determine issues that are truly common to the class in the sense that they don't require consideration of claimant's individual circumstances. So it seems there will be a, a bifurcated approach to the claim of the sort that was envisaged by Lord Leggett in the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Lloyd and Google, which we've, we've covered in the past and which is obviously very high profile. Um, so it seems that common issues will be addressed at the initial trial and individual issues will be left for a later stage. And it seems from the Court of Appeals decision that, at least in the Court of Appeals view, there's only one quite narrow common issue to be determined at the initial stage, essentially as to the correct legal test for liability. So that if you, even if the claimant succeeds on that issue, it won't amount to an actual finding of liability in any individual case. And in fact, the decision doesn't address in any detail what happens next if the claimant does succeed, including whether and if so, how the funder supporting the claim might be able to get paid, given that the claims do not belong to the representative claimant who will have signed up to the funding agreement as opposed to individual class members. So there's there's lots of issues um, and, and we'll have to wait and see how, how these all play out. So that's it from me. Uh, next, Alex, you're going to tell us about the Court of Appeals decision in Churchill and Merthyr Tidfil County Borough Council. So if you could um, start off, I guess, with why that decision is so significant. Well, it's significant really because it establishes that the courts can order parties to mediate or engage in some other form of alternative dispute resolution, when for many years it was thought that there was an English law prohibition on courts compelling ADR. The widely held view was that the courts could encourage parties to mediate, even strongly encourage them, but they couldn't force them to do so. And that view derived particularly from the Court of Appeals decision in Halsey and Milton Keynes General NHS Trust way back in 2004, uh, where Lord Justice Dyson, as he then was, said that to oblige truly unwilling parties to refer their disputes to mediation would be to impose an unacceptable obstruction on their right of access to the court. Now, that proposition was tested in a rather unusual context in Churchill, which was a case about Japanese knotweed. Mr Churchill brought a nuisance action against his local borough council relating to Japanese knotweed, which was encroaching onto his property from the council's adjoining land. The council applied to stay the claim on the basis that Mr Churchill should have made use of the council's complaints procedure before issuing proceedings. So the complaints procedure was a form of alternative dispute resolution. At first instance, the judge considered himself bound by Halsey to dismiss the council's application for a stay of the action, even though he thought Mr Churchill had been unreasonable in failing to engage with the complaints procedure. But he didn't think he could effectively force Mr Churchill to follow that ADR procedure. The Court of Appeal disagreed. It found that there was a power to compel ADR, though on the facts it didn't actually grant a stay in that particular case. So, so how did the Court of Appeal deal with the Halsey decision if up to that point everyone 
thought it meant the courts couldn't compel ADR because obviously it couldn't overturn the housing decision because court of appeal decisions are, are binding on, on the court in, in later cases. Uh, that's right. The, the key point was that it decided that Lord Justice Dyson's comments in Halsey about the court's powers to compel mediation or the lack of any such power were not binding precedent, but merely obiter dicta or non-binding comments. Halsey was a decision about whether cost sanctions should be imposed against successful parties who would ordinarily expect to recover costs on the grounds that they had refused to participate in ADR. The decision identified a number of factors the courts should take into account in deciding whether a refusal to mediate was unreasonable and should therefore result in cost sanctions, in other words a reduction in the costs recovery that the winner would have expected. These factors are often referred to as the Halsey factors, and it was in that context that Lord Justice Dyson made his comments about whether the court can order parties to mediate against their will. The court didn't have to decide whether it could compel mediation, and that wasn't a necessary step in reaching the court's conclusions on the issues it did have to decide. And so, as the Court of Appeal in Churchill held, Lord Justice Dyson's comments are not binding in future cases. So what does the Churchill decision mean in practice? Uh, do, do you have a sense of how often the courts will exercise this new power? Well, the court in Churchill deliberately didn't seek to dictate how courts should exercise the power to compel ADR. So the courts will have a broad discretion. I would expect most judges to be cautious, uh, particularly where there are sophisticated and well-advised commercial parties <clears throat> involved in commercial litigation. Maybe different where there are uh, SMEs involved and less sophisticated litigants who need a stronger steer from the court. But in the commercial context, parties will almost invariably decide of their own initiative to mediate or engage in some other form of ADR at an appropriate stage. And the stage at which ADR is most likely to be valuable is something that the parties and their lawyers will often be best placed to assess in many cases. That was recognised actually by the Civil Justice Council when it reviewed uh, the pre-action protocols last summer and it recommended a new mandatory obligation to engage in pre-action ADR but said it would consider in the next stage of its review whether there should be a more flexible approach for commercial proceedings in the business and property courts. So it's widely accepted I think that a prescri prescriptive approach may not be appropriate for larger commercial cases. What I would expect is that in most cases, judge, judges will allow commercial parties to take the initiative in identifying when the time is right for mediation or another ADR process, using compulsion only with the most intransigent parties and as a last resort. That said, I would expect judges to continue to encourage parties to use ADR at as early a stage in the dispute as is likely to be constructive. After all, the sooner an ADR process starts, the greater the potential for saving in costs, management time of the litigants and of course court resources. Thank you Alice, all, all really interesting. Finally Martin, turning to you, I think you're going to tell us about a, a couple of recent decisions about exclusion clauses and the Unfair Contract Terms Act or UPTA as we like to call it. Uh, do you want to start with the High Court's decision in Pinewood Technologies? Um, so this was a defendant's application for summary judgment uh, on the basis that uh, losses claim were excluded by a clause in the contract. Now, in that case, uh, the claimant argued that UCTA applied on the basis that the parties had contracted on the defendant's standard terms of business, and therefore the exclusion clause had to satisfy the statutory test of reasonableness. 
The court, though, didn't really have a lot of time for that argument. So they referred to Court of Appeal authority, which shows that the question of whether parties contract on standard terms really comes down to whether there have been more than insubstantial variations to those terms. If that is the case, then they're not contracting on standard terms and also won't apply to the exclusion clause. It doesn't matter whether any variations have been made to that exclusion clause itself. Applying that test to the facts of the case, the court said that it was clear that there had been material changes to those terms. And so the claimant had no real prospect of establishing that they were contracting on standard terms so that Ucta reasonableness test applied. Additionally, as a matter of construction, the court considered it to be clear that the clause excluded the losses claimed. Now, I don't intend to go into the facts and details of that case, but it is a useful reminder that the courts will apply even a broad exclusion of liability where the language of that clause is clear and unambiguous. That applies equally when you're considering whether a clause excludes liability for a deliberate repudiatory breach, just as it would for any other types of breach. The court rejected, in that case, the claimant's suggestion of a presumption that, in the absence of clear words, the clause won't cover deliberate repudiatory breach, which is something that's popped up from time to time in the cases, but has generally been given short shrift. Thanks. Thanks. That's, that's really interesting. I have seen some of those um, cases, and, and, and I agree it's, it's something that courts don't seem to have a lot of time for. Um, now, I think your other case about UCTA is the Court of Appeals decision in Last Bus and Dawson Group. Do you want to tell us about that one? Yeah, that, that, um, that case is a fairly unusual decision about the factors to be taken into account in determining reasonableness under UCTA, where parties contracting on the other standard terms. So one of those factors, as set out in Schedule 2 to the Act, is the strength of the bargaining position for the parties relative to each other, taking into account, amongst other things, alternative means by which the customer's requirements could have been met. Now, first instance, the judge found that the claimant and the defendant were of equal bargaining power, which fed into his decision that he should grant summary judgment on the basis that the exclusion clause in the contract was reasonable. Now, the Court of the Appeal, when it looked at this, allowed the appeal, in part on the basis that the question was fact-sensitive and therefore not suitable for summary judgment, but also on the basis that the judge had made an error in how he approached the question of equality of bargaining strength. The Court of Appeal said that it wasn't a question of bargaining strength concerning the contract price that was relevant, but rather a question of bargaining strength concerning the contract terms, bearing in mind that one was contracting on the other standard terms. As such, it isn't to be assumed that just because a party might be large, powerful, wealthy in its own industry, that it necessarily has bargaining strength in other contracts. The Court of Appeal found that since it was plain in this case that the defendant would not have contracted without the exclusion clause and no material different terms were available in the market, the judge arguably should have concluded that the parties were not of equal bargaining strength. Now, in terms of the implications of that decision, I think the decision may, may make it a bit more difficult for a business to establish the reasonableness of an exclusion clause where it's contracting on its own standard terms because the court's focus is on equality of bargaining strength for its contract terms rather than bar bargaining power more generally. It also suggests that the courts would be reluctant to determine whether a clause meets the reasonableness test on a summary judgment application given the fact-sensitive nature of the question. And so in most cases where the reasonableness test, test applies, that question is likely to have to go to trial. Thanks for that, Martin. Um, and also thanks to Alex and to all of you for listening. 
that brings us to the end of today's podcast and we'll be back with another update in a couple of months.